0: Well, we're in a series right now, and the series has to do with the Psalms and worship. And we're going to move in and out through those two subjects throughout this period. Um, I was uh, happy that we sang Psalm 84.10 this morning. Did you know that we sang Psalm 84? Uh, And thank you, Rich. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And Psalms 84.10. I want to start today, uh, the sermon's entitled, People Who've Prayed the Psalms or Not. And I want to start today with Ahaz, because Ahaz is is an important character to talk about, his worldview, how he approaches things, and I'm going to contrast him with David uh, in the second half of the sermon. Saul, David, and Solomon were, uh, really, David and Solomon were the glory years of Israel. Israel was a united country. Each one of these three kings reigned 40 years, uh, 40 good years, 40 years of uh, almost peace and prosperity. Uh, They didn't have wars nearly like they did later in their history. Um, Ahaz, our character today, was the twelfth king of Judah. Because after Solomon, this united, peaceful monarchy split into two nations. Southern nation called Judah, the northern nation called Israel or Samaria. And things were never good after that, after they split. Ahaz was the twelfth king in the southern kingdom, Judah. He reigned from 732 to 715 B.C. He died at the age of 36, a young man. Uh, And he was a rotten king, absolutely rotten king. At the time of his reign, Assyria was a world power. Uh, And in fact, uh, something that I didn't realize was that Assyria was a much larger kingdom than Babylon was, which was the the next world kingdom that came along. Uh, Assyria had annexed land as far as Egypt. It was a monster kingdom, and they were gobbling up land. In the 200 years of their ascension to becoming a world power, they conquered about 25 nations, if my counting is right. Can you imagine that? Twenty-five nations they marched into and killed their people and took their resources and annexed them and uh, made them part of their kingdom. You don't hear much about Assyria today, but Assyria is the one that's responsible for developing the concepts of longitude and latitude. Interesting. They divided a circle into 360 degrees. That was the Assyrians. They established a seven-day week. They created a network of paved roads. The leather jackboot that's used by military people was developed in Assyria. And it was technologically and militarily a monster nation. That was a grim reality for Ahaz. It was one of the things that was on his war room charts is the way that Assyria was gobbling up territory and Judah was right in the crosshairs. And so was Israel to its north and Syria, where Damascus is, where the war is going on right now, where uh, King Assad, is that his name? Uh, is killing his people. That's Syria. And Assyria was looking to annex them. So, Pekah, king of Israel, and Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, king of Syria, decided that the only way that they could stave off Assyria gobbling them up was to get together and uh, to lead a coalition against Assyria. And they wanted Ahaz to join their coalition. Ahaz is a pragmatist and I want you to think about what pragmatism does because pragmatism says I'm going to do what works. I'm going to do what gets me results. And that's a way of looking at the world that tends to cut God out of the picture. Because I'm not looking at situations, I'm not looking at possibilities in terms of how God might enter that, how God might bless my work. I I don't enter that situation wondering, I wonder what God would like for me to do. What wisdom exists that I could learn from God about this situation? It's not part of pragmatism. And so Pekah and Reason say to Ahaz, we want you to join our coalition. And Ahaz, being a pragmatist, says nothing doing that part of the decision was good but Ahaz is thinking I'm not gonna make Assyria mad at me because I've seen what they do so Ahaz goes to Assyria and he says hey good buddy I'd like to be your friend Well king of Assyria says, great, we'll be buddies, now you pay me tax, and you give me this, and you give me that. And that was the second bad decision in a two-part decision. Second Kings 16 defines what Ahaz believed, which led him to these decisions. Apparently he admired the kings of, of Israel to some degree because he followed their model of leadership. He adopted their gods. So the text that Robin read to us today about Ahaz uh, talks about that, how he he took his own obje- objects of worship out of the temple and he cut them up and, and threw them away. And He nailed the door of the temple shut so people couldn't go there. And he put altars on the high places to Baal and Asherah so that his people would have lots of those kinds of opportunities but no opportunity to worship God. He learned that from his neighbors. Not only that, but Ahaz believed that there was was some sort of pragmatic good to be achieved from... uh, following these false gods. I mean, Pekah and Reason had come down into Judah and had sort of kicked his butt. And so he's going, well, those gods must be good. Look what they did to us. And so Ahaz takes his little boy, his firstborn son, and cuts his throat and offers him on an altar to Baal. Can you imagine that? It's horrifying. He was pragmatic. He was willing to do whatever he believed would help him to achieve his goals, including worshiping the gods. Ahaz wasn't the first person to think this way. Uh, Remember when Israel goes to Samuel and they say to Samuel, hey, we want a king like all the rest of the nations. Seems to be a pretty good idea. Pragmatic. Pragmatism. We want to do what the other people are doing. We want to do what seems to work. it was a bad idea. In Genesis 11, uh, people build this tower that we call the Tower of Babel, and they say, let's, uh, let's do this thing. Let's make a name for ourselves. And it's very self-actualized, self-initiated. There's no God in it. Even Israel, when it was uh, fleeing Egypt and Egyptian captivity, says to Moses, pragmatism we'd rather go back to Egypt, it's a better deal than what we've got right now. And again, God is cut out of the picture, and there's no question being asked about what, it got, what has God got in mind for us. In every case, in the case of Ahaz and Babel and Israel, the basic assumption is that the solution to my problems is self-actualized, is self-created. Second Chronicles says that the distress of the times did not push Ahaz closer to God, but he became more faith, faithless. He became more faithless, and he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. That would be Syria. Well, David, on the other hand, is not without his problems. Um, best examples are when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and he murders Uriah to cover his tracks. Not a shining moment for David. And then later he decides that he's going to conduct a census of Israel, and I think it was pragmatic. He says, We, well, you know, I want to know what my military might is, and so I'm going to count my troops. Well, where's God in that? There was no God in it. It was God it was David assessing his military might. What could he do? Not what could God do. For through him. But there are some notable differences between Ahaz and David, very, very notable differences. In the case of Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he tells David this story about a rich guy stealing a poor guy's little lamb. And David says, Well, I'll hang the guy up by the yard arm. That's unconscionable. And Nathan says, "Uh, David, that's you. David is, is driven to his knees in grief. Ahaz would have never done that. That would have never crossed Ahaz's mind. In the case of the illegal census, We're told this is the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 24. We're told that David was stricken to the heart because he numbered the people. He realized how much he had offended God in doing that. And he offers this sacrifice of repentance. Well, you know, the sermon, I want to remind you of the sermon title. It's People Who've Prayed the Psalms or Not. And so if you go to Psalm 51, you find out what, David was praying, what he was feeling after his sin with Bathsheba, and he says, have mercy on me, O God. I know my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. Those are not contiguous statements. Those are throughout that psalm, Psalm 51. A broken man. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the Psalms help us get in touch with those kinds of thoughts. Because overwhelmingly, the Psalms are about God, not about me. Whenever I read the Psalms, I, it, it just takes my mind off me. There's, there's no, in the Psalms, there's no praying, God, help me get that job, or help me buy that thing, or help me do that thing, or help me get that person. There, there's none of that. But it focuses on God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's the spirit of the Psalms. So, the psalmist of Psalm 32 says... Many are the torments of the wicked, and we really see that in Ahaz. Ahaz lives to regret his decision. You know, he, th- he does the pragmatic thing. He thinks he's going to make the king of Assyria really happy, and instead he sells his people down the political drain. The wicked are not able to draw a correlation between the, their sin and the quality of their lives. I'm sometimes amazed at how blind we are about stuff like that. It's like, uh, you know, the uh, definition of insanity it's doing the same thing over, over and over again and expecting different results. And that's what we sinners are. We do the same thing over and over again, we model the same behaviors in our relationships. We, we treat people the same, and we keep getting bad results, and we can't figure out what's going on there. And I think when we look at Ahaz, we realize how fruitless that sort of approach to life is. There's got to be a better way. And David models that way. At times of sin and distress, David becomes more contrite, more submissive, closer to God. But Ahaz becomes more confused and more entangled in his sin. He just doesn't learn from it. Psalms are really unequivocal about their value to our life. The very first psalm declares that people who do not follow the advice of the wicked are, guess what, happy. I think that's neat. They're happy. They're like trees, the psalmist says, that grow near water and bear generous amounts of fruit. And, and this is God's promise to us, to those of us who, who follow him and do what he says. Psalms 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It goes on and it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's actually a song in in, uh, some hymnals. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 119 has the same sort of sentiment Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Don't you think Ahaz would have liked to have had a little bit of that wisdom when he was coming up against Assyria or against Pekah and Reason? But it never dawned on him. It never occurred to him that maybe he ought to turn to God at those times. I I think it it has to be made clear. The Bible does not offer us a sampler of of ideas to try out. It's not like going to a brew pub and saying, I'd like a a five-beer sampler. I'd like to try a little bit of each one or to, to some other kind of restaurant or whatever it may be that offers you a cent. It's not that way. God says, this is what's on the menu. This is what will make you wise. This is what will give you life. This is what will shine light in your life. And in the case of the Bible, eat this. Take this in. It assumes that the blessed person has entered wholeheartedly and fully into listening to it and taking it in. And yet I I think sometimes we have have the idea that I can just take a taste and that will be enough. And God says, no, I want you body and soul. I think we need this lesson of Ahaz and David because too often we're like Ahaz, and I'm speaking of mankind in general. We make our decisions like a person who loves God but also wants to keep the high places. You know, I kind of like to play both ends against the middle. I'd like to hedge my bets. Because you never know when you might need a bail to get you out of a tough spot. What do you think would have happened to Ahaz if he had trusted God? I think it'd be kind of interesting to read this story with an Ahaz of faith, don't you? Here's what I think would have happened He would have gotten rid of the high places, certainly. He would have said, Look, guys, I was wrong. Come back to the temple. Come back to God. Forget those altars that we put up everywhere. He would have turned the problem of pika and reason over to God. The minute that he knew what they were planning, he would have been on his knees saying, I don't know what to do with these two people. I know they're about to attack me. I need your help. Three he would have laughed at Tiglath-Pileser III and refused to give him tribute. He would have never gone there in the first place. And like Pekah and Reason, he would have said, God, Assyria is a problem. I don't know what to do with it. Number four, he would have led his people to worship God alone. None of this sampler kind of business. No... Here's here's a sample of five gods. Pick the one that you want or pick any combination of the gods that you want. David made plenty of mistakes, but his 40-year reign was blessed. In fact, it was the high point of Israel's history as a nation. We get 40 more years with his son Solomon, but after that, it was never united again. There was never a time... When Israel and Judah thought as one nation and there was idolatry and war and intrigue and murder and all kinds of stuff that went on in those two nations because they pragmatically thought they knew better than God. It's what they thought. He has David has a 40-year reign. Ahaz has a 16-year reign before he dies. And they don't even allow him to be buried in the cemetery of the kings of Israel. Nobody wants him there. Here's some ways I think our culture is like Ahaz's cherry-picking beliefs, a little from here, a little from there. It's what got Israel into trouble. I've used this word before. It's a great word. It's not a word you can drop when you're out with a group of your friends, but the word is syncretism, and that's cherry-picking. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. saying I'm spiritual but not religious. You know I don't like the word religious because I think it confuses people these days, but if you'll allow me a little slack here. This is often a code word that says I don't take my faith very seriously. I don't want anything that encroaches on my life and my freedom. I want to do what I want to do. I'm spiritual. Um, It's... It's a code word for spineless, commitmentless, faithless. In point of fact, we really ought to be saying, I love God more than anything. And my life is committed to him. That would be the best. Third, making making pragmatism a determinant of what we choose rather than our faith in God. I, re, I remember being kind of astounded by this. Um, years ago, I, I heard a statistic. And it had to do with, well, it wasn't really a statistic. It was more like anecdotal information, but it was about parents who counsel their kids against going into ministry because ministry pragmatics doesn't pay enough. Well, it's, you know, you're not going to be able to do what you might do if you got a nice job at somewhere else. And this is not a job against somewhere else, but it is a statement about telling somebody who's, who feels called or committed to that that uh, let's make this decision on the basis of something other than your relationship with God. Does that make sense? which is what these parents were doing with their kids. Number four, winking at human failure. Um, setting the bar really low, in other words, I think, is, is one of the ways that we do this. Um, I'll be the first to tell you that we're all flawed and we all make mistakes, but I'll also be the first to tell you that the bar is really here. This is what God created me for. Why would I not want to live for that? Why would I say this is good enough? A, a lick and a, a promise. You know, we got company coming over, and Beth's going through the house and picking up, and I'm helping her, and she'll say, uh, just a lick and a promise. You know, we don't have time to, to do it thoroughly. A lick and a promise promise being I'll, I'll get to this tomorrow and that's good for some things but it's not good for my relationship with God it deserves more than a lick and a promise and I think last is the failure to eat the diet that God set before us one of the reasons I've been wanting to look at the Psalms and and I want to spend this much time in it because the Psalms tell us something about ourselves. Uh, The Psalms tell us something about our God that we worship and I think God intends for us to read them and know them and make them part of our daily lives. I'm not offering myself as a model because I'm not. I love it when I read them but I know I don't read them enough. Cherry-picking beliefs, saying I'm spiritual but not religious, making pragmatism a determinant of how I make decisions, winking at human failure, and failing to eat the diet that God has set before us. I submit to you that if Ahaz had changed those elements in his life, he would have been a different king and we'd be reading a different story about his life. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be like Ahaz who made his son pass through the fire. We do not want to be prey to the prevailing gods of our times. Please fill us with your spirit. May we always take the way that leads to you rather than Assyria. May you and you alone be the Lord, the God that sits on our throne. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.